Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Freeze it. Thanks, Morpheus, because I was looking at the woman in the red dress, but she happened to have the face of Hugo Weaving, so you've got to update that training program, alright, buddy? Everybody else, get out your red pills, because it's time to hack into the Matrix, you godless heathens. Reese Hendrick here, host of Science Factual, and for today's episode, we're going to boot up the iconic Matrix franchise by the Wachowski sisters. That is, the original three films, Animatrix, and the recently released Resurrections. Joining us in the simulation is guest comedian Corey Wilson. We met up at the Arrowwood Comedy Open Mic to talk comedy and dive into the franchise. Hello? Oh, it's for you. It's a... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! This system-wide alert goes out to all you fine copper tops out there who haven't downloaded all of the various pieces of the franchise or just haven't seen them in a while. Make sure you stick around for the end of the episode for a hilarious set from Corey at the Helium Comedy Club as well as an original song by the boys Wilson. They're pretty great. I like feel that red pill kicking in a bit so why don't we dip a toe into the rabbit hole with an overview of the franchise before the interview with Corey. The Matrix is an American media franchise consisting of four feature films, beginning with The Matrix from 1999 and continuing with three sequels, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, both from 2003, and The Matrix Resurrections, more recently from 2021. The first three films were written and directed by the Wachowskis and produced by Joel Silver. The screenplay for the fourth film was written by David Mitchell and Alexander Heeman and was directed only by Lana Wachowski. The series features a cyberpunk story of the technological fall of humanity, in which the creation of artificial intelligence led the way to a race of powerful and self-aware machines that imprisoned mankind in a virtual reality system, the Matrix, to be farmed as a power source. Occasionally, some of the prisoners manage to break free from the system and, considered a threat, become pursued by the artificial intelligence both inside and outside of the Matrix. The films focus on the plight of Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, Trinity, played by Carrie Ann Moss, and Morpheus, played by both Lawrence Fishburne and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who are trying to free humanity from the system while pursued by its guardians, such as Agent Smith, originally played by Hugo Weaving, and then by Jonathan Groff in Resurrections, technically Abdul-Mateen II as well. The story incorporates references to numerous norms, particularly philosophical, religious, and spiritual ideas, among others the dilemma of choice versus control, the brain-in-a-vat thought experiment, messianism, and the concepts of interdependency and love. Influences include the principles of mythology, anime, and Hong Kong action films, particularly heroic bloodshed and martial arts movies. 
The film series is notable for its use of heavily choreographed action sequences and bullet time slow motion effects, which revolutionized action films to come. The characters and setting of the films are further explored in other media set in the same fictional universe, including animation, comics, and video games. The comic bits and pieces of information and the Animatrix short film, The Second Renaissance, act as prequels to the films, explaining how the franchise's setting came to be. The video game Enter the Matrix connects the story of the Animatrix short Final Flight of the Osiris with the events of Reloaded, while the online video game The Matrix Online was a direct sequel to Revolutions. These were typically written, commissioned, or approved by the Wachowskis. The first film was an important critical and commercial success, winning four Academy Awards, introducing popular cultural symbols such as the Red Pill and Blue Pill, and influencing action filmmaking. For those reasons, it has been added to the National Film Registry for preservation. Its first sequel was also a commercial success, becoming the highest grossing R-rated film in history until it was surpassed by Deadpool in 2016. As of 2006, the franchise had generated $3 billion in revenue. A fourth film, The Matrix Resurrections, was released on December 22, 2021 with Lana Wachowski producing, co-writing, and directing, with Reeves and Moss reprising their roles. The Matrix films make numerous references to films and literature and to historical myths and philosophy, including Buddhism, Vedanta, Advaita Hinduism, Christianity, Messianism, Judaism, Gnosticism, Existentialism, Obscurantism, and Nihilism. The film's premise resembles Plato's Allegory of the Cave and René Descartes' Evil Demon Theory, which is to say this evil demon is imagined to present a complete illusion of an external world so that Descartes can say, I shall think that the sky, the air, the earth, colors, shapes, sounds, and all external things are merely the delusions of dreams, which he has devised to ensnare my judgment. I shall consider myself as not having hands or eyes, or flesh, or blood or senses, but as falsely believing that I have all of these things. Other influences include Kantian philosophy regarding phenomenon, which explores the unknowable thing in itself, or in German, Ding on Sick. Zhuangzi's Zhuangzi dreamed he was a butterfly, Marxist social theory, and the brain in a vat thought experiment. Many references to Jean Baudrillard's 1981 treatise Simulacra and Simulation appear in the first film. Baudrillard himself considered this a misrepresentation, although Lana Wachowski claims the point the reference was making was misunderstood. There are similarities to cyberpunk works such as the 1984 book Neuromancer by William Gibson, who has described The Matrix as arguably the ultimate cyberpunk artifact. For more on Neuromancer, check out episode 21 of Science Factual, where I dive into the iconic novel with Noah Linsk from The Book Report. By the way, Chapter 5 of the book report will be dropping soon, covering the earliest examples of sci-fi literature, with a focus on Frankenstein by Mary Shelley featuring guest Cassie Rood. Alright, getting back to The Matrix, Japanese director Mamoru Oshii's 1995 film Ghost in the Shell was a strong influence. Producer Joel Silver has stated that the Wachowskis first described their intentions for The Matrix by showing him that anime, and saying, we want to do that for real. 
Mitsuhisha Ishikawa from Production IG, which produced Ghost in the Shell, noted that the anime's high-quality visuals were a strong source of inspiration for the Wachowskis. He also commented, Cyberpunk films are very difficult to describe to a third person. I'd imagine that The Matrix is the kind of film that was very difficult to draw up a written proposal for to take to film studios. He stated that since Ghost in the Shell had gained recognition in America, the Wachowskis used it as a promotional tool. Similarities to the 1985 anime film Megazone 23 have also been noticed, but the Wachowskis stated they've never seen it, or at least hadn't seen it during the formation of The Matrix. Reviewers have commented on similarities between The Matrix and other late 1990s films such as Strange Days, Dark City, and The Truman Show. The Wachowski stated Dark City had no influence on the franchise, but commented about it and The Truman Show, saying they thought it was very strange that Australia came to have three films associated with it that were all about the nature of reality. Comparisons have also been made to Grant Morrison's comic series The Invisibles, Morrison believes that the Wachowskis essentially plagiarized their work to create the film. The Wachowskis responded that they enjoy the comic, but did not use it for inspiration. In addition, the similarity of the film's central concept to a device in the long-running series Doctor Who has also been noted. As in the film, the matrix of that series, introduced in the 1976 serial The Deadly Assassin, is a massive computer system which one enters using a device connected to the head, allowing users to see representations of the real world and change its laws of physics, but if killed there, they will die in reality. Sound familiar? It's also the repository of the combined knowledge of the Time Lords, so that's kinda cool. The first Matrix film features numerous references to the quote White Rabbit, the Rabbit Hole, which sounds like a great gay bar name, and Mirrors, referring to Lewis Carroll's novels Alice's Adventures in Wonderland from 1865 and Through the Looking Glass from 1871. Matrixism is a new religious movement inspired by the trilogy. Adam Pasamai, a sociologist of religion, describes these types of religions as hyper-real due to their eclectic mix of religion and spirituality with elements of popular culture and their connection to the fluid social structures of late capitalism. There is some debate about whether followers of Matrixism are indeed serious about their practice. However, the religion, real or otherwise, has received attention in the media because they're thirsty for that sweet, sweet content. Following the Wachowskis coming out as transgender women some years after the release of the films, the first film and the pill analogy have also been analyzed in the context of the Wachowskis' transgender experiences. In this case, taking the red pill and living out the Matrix symbolizes exploring one's own gender identity, starting with the transition and coming out as transgender as opposed to a continued life in the closet. In 2016, Lily Wachowski acknowledged this analysis by calling it a cool thing because it's an excellent reminder that art is never static. Alright, let's load up this interview program with today's guest, Corey Wilson. We went further down the rabbit hole into the recesses of the Matrix franchise. Yeah, I think I've only been to Austin one time when I was in Texas to buy weed, and <laughs> it's the only time I ever been there. How, what is the weed like in Texas? Because it's not recreational, right? In, like, in 2001, when I was there mm. in college, it, I was like 16, 17 years old. It was, yeah. It was the, the dog shit. That's when we took a trip to Colorado. It's the brick you get in the trash bag kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was terrible. I'm familiar with such weed. <laughs> yeah, it's a trip how, like, you know, when... How old are you, Corey? I'll be 40 this year, this August. Right on. I'm yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 33, and I remember in high school that a dub was not only a hard thing to come by, if you will, but, like, you paid $20 for one gram of shitty weed. Yeah. And now, for the same 20 and $21... You go and get like high caliber concentrated fucking, you know, like <laughs> distillate oil. Yeah. That would knock any of our ancestors on their ass. You know what I mean? Like, sure. yeah. And, and it's for 20 bucks. Yeah. 20 bucks, you can go to the movies and find weed on the way. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it used to be this whole thing where you were like planning your day around getting weed, and now it's just another errand. It's crazy. It's so crazy. Well, especially if you're in Portland, and I mean, is, it, you think, is Texas, they decriminalized it almost, right? Or I have no idea. Like, is, I don't it's, know the weed situation. You're going to and you, oh, you don't smoke uh, I'm just uh, weed anymore. I mean, I'm a, like kind of around it a lot. Mm. You know, I've worked for CBD companies and stuff like that in the past, but. Most people in my friend group smoke weed, and I send it to them a lot. <laughs> so I know they can't go to a place to just buy it. Yeah, I mean, and it's so easy. Don't you know, anybody at the FAA listening right now? Don't listen. But like, I mean, it's so easy to yeah. travel with too. Like, it's because it's it doesn't smell like anything anymore. It's right. all contained in this little cartridge. Again, oh. TSA, FAA. This episode is not for you. It got way too sciencey because I, I I always thought like it was kind of goofy. Like, the culture of weed itself, like, it was such a part of people's culture, mm. and I, I, which is totally hypocritical of me, because, like, I've been that way my whole life with alcohol. Just, like, like such a part of my culture, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, but when people do it with weed, I'm like, fuck are you doing? And now it's like, they're nerds now. Yeah, there are some weed nerds out there for sure. CBD and CBG and, like, all this stuff. I'm like, what? There are a lot of cannabinoids out there, that's for sure. Well... Folks, the voice you hear other than my own, this is Corey Wilson. What's up, Corey? Hi, man. Hey, man. Thanks for joining me. Uh, we're here to not only talk about weed, but I guess but we're here to talk about the Matrix trilogy. Yes, we are. Well, really, I, I think we're here to talk about the first Matrix. For sure. And going ham on the Animatrix. Yeah, that was that's pretty dope. But we're going to go hard on that in a minute. First, I want to know, what is your Instagram? It's Corey1Kenobi. One word. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so that works, right? Like, it, it works because it's, you know, it's fun. All of my handles are RHB3PO. Nice. Because, it, it, like, the B and the C, it's close enough, you know, but it, that's, like, one of those things where, like, you really want to make to make it work because, like, it's cool. It's kind of shoehorned. Yeah, a, li- <laughs> a little shoehorned, yeah. So, Corey One Kenobi. Corey One Kenobi, yeah. Okay. Well, follow Corey on the Instagram machines. Let me ask you this, too, because, you know, I, I've been... It hit in the Portland comedy scene in particular for a year and a half, almost two years now. And like I started off doing comedy in South Florida. So like you're, you're relatively new to Portland. You moved here like a year and a half ago, roughly, right? Yeah. How long have you been doing comedy? About six months. Yeah. I'm brand new. Nice. I'm a baby. Love it. Yeah. Your little cherub wings and everything. It's fantastic. Yeah. No. Well, we just did the Arrowwood mic here on Northeast Sandy. And, I mean, you know, this is a staple mic for sure. Happens every Wednesday, 8.30. Laughs PDX sponsored mic. Go to laughspdx.com for all of your comedy needs in Portland, folks. Comedy is so great here, not only for the community, but the audience, too. Like, there was an audience member at a mic that came out of the restaurant. Hopefully she washed her hands. But she, she gave you a big old hug. It was like, you were funny. I loved you. And, you know, like, 
That's, which is, you know, it's kind of rad. That's too. how you know she was hammered. Yeah. It's fun. Out of everybody there, she's like, oh, you were great. And <laughs> she did. She smelled like a bottle of Jack Daniels, but she was great, though. Yeah. Reminded me of my uncle. Just nice. smell, you know, it brings you back memories. Sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes, I do know that. But right. no, it's, this place is the, is the shit. Is Arrowwood is one of my favorite mics. That's why I was stoked you wanted to meet here. Yeah. Because I have uh, only been here a couple of times, but the, it's always like this. Like, it's always chill. And the comedians come in and they filter in through the night and it's never super packed. It's, you know, yeah. Kind of you know, it's, it's a place to do work, you know, put in reps yeah, for sure. Exactly. Which I definitely did earlier. I was putting in reps on some new stuff and ate a little shit, but you know what? That's how the, that's me. That's the way it goes, like you know? Nothing but eat shit. I was just stoked that I was able to put together that bunk bed thing to at least make a little laugh. That was funny. I just, I, I just hope for your odd sake that she's, that you're on the bottom bunk. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, this is an audio medium to, to let him explain the fact that I'm a big and that's true. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, that's there's nothing wrong with being a big fella. I just hope structurally that you know, you know there's uh, no, they just take that into consideration. Oh, there's safety and <laughs> protocols that you got to go through. You know, you need to use your head when, when you're uh, bunking the bed. That's you know, it. There you go. We'll just put some extra struts in there because <laughs> you should be able to have the top bunk if that's your dream, Corey. You should have the top bunk, but, <laughs> you know, I, func- functionally, I don't know. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know if that means I should go now and go get my bunk. Let's, bunk. Let, yeah, let's stop the podcast. Let's go, <laughs> let's make it happen. So, uh, what was your first exposure to science fiction then? Uh, my earliest memory of anything science fiction is also my earliest memory of any movie I've ever seen, and it was Star Wars. Hell yeah, right on. That, that is probably the most common answer that I come across is that Star Wars is like that gateway science fiction that people encounter in one way, shape, or form, whether it was truly the first like science fiction that you were aware of, or it's at least the one that makes the most impression. Yeah. I mean, for when I was born in 83. Yeah. That's, so that's when six came out, when Return yeah. came out. Yeah. So I had a, a lifetime of exposure to it. Yeah, exactly. It was a very small gap of my life of looking back that there wasn't Star Wars, and now it's just coming out and... Huge fan. I have Star Wars tattoos with like half sleeve here. Like, as it, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Well, and like you clock the Rebel Egger that I have on my, you know, the car here. And, you know, it's definitely has been a staple in my life. I would consider myself more of a Trekkie now for uh, over time, you know, just simply because there is not to say there isn't a lot of Star Wars canon. There is. Shout out Jamie Carbon, also a local Portland comedian, and their knowledge of, well, just most nerd things, but Star Wars in particular is impressive. They're the co-host of my favorite open mic. Nice. Which one is that? That's a Beer Belly Laughs. Oh, yeah, Beer Belly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Over at, um, oh, what is it, uh, Taproom 26? Brewery 26, maybe? Brewery 26. Yeah. There it is. Lots of breweries and tap rooms in Portland. So, yeah, definitely lots of Star Wars coming out. Um, you know, Andor, I'm looking forward to binging uh, Mandalorian Season 3. And they've already announced that uh, Mandalorian Season 4 is being has been written. Really? So, stoked on that kind of stuff. Um, what was your first exposure to The Matrix? Because that's what, that's what we're here for. Let's, let's like, get into the mix. Yeah, yeah well, let's boot in. The Let's that's, boot that's in, yeah. The Matrix movie itself, as I saw it in the theater. Yeah. Uh, when I was, I think it was in high school, and uh, I was blown away. Like, yeah. I really was. And, like, everything about it was really cool, and uh, even ended with a Rage Against the Machine song. Like, everything was Hell yeah. super cool about it. It's one of the best movies I had ever seen up to, at that time. I was, it was 1999, right? I want to say. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was nine. 
which means that you were 15, like you were right in the wheel. Yeah, I was, like, per I was perfect age yeah, for the Matrix. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you were listening to new metal. Yeah. You had a trench coat. <laughs> yep. Where absolutely my rifles. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of all that, are you familiar with the Matrix murders? Like the, the there's a couple of murders that have occurred where the kid like was like, I felt like I was in a simulation and wanted to test that and did so by fucking blowing his parents away. It sounds familiar, but I couldn't speak on it. But man, so but that just goes to show like how crazy like a concept. If it's a good enough concept, it doesn't surprise me at all. It rocked my head for a while. Yeah, like it. Well, it made me think about things in a different. Are we way. a simulation? Exactly. Yeah, like, totally. Maybe, and I've thought that way since. I question it all the time. <laughs> So it's, the Matrix is probably my favorite thing that the Wachowski sisters have done, aside from V for Vendetta. Well, yeah. That that inter, that rendition of, because it's my favorite story by Alan Moore. That's your favorite graphic. Alan Moore story? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That You like that more than Watchmen? I, so I love Watchmen. I've done an episode on it with Jake Silverman. I've done the follow-up Doomsday Clock crossover episode with Gene DeWeber for Obsessive Comic Disorder. And not to say that Alan Moore was involved in that project, but it was a great continuation. I'm just a sucker for like a great story, and and that's not to say that Watchmen isn't a fantastic story in and of itself. Yeah. But if you look at it through certain lenses, like much like how the underlying tones and allegory of the Matrix are lost in action, a lot of people don't see V for Vendetta for the message; they see it for like the action or extremism within the story. Right. And, it, you know, it's it's such an interesting arc to me. And that, that's why it's a little bit more engaging to me from a vigilante story as opposed to, like, a group of superheroes story. Fair enough. Yeah. Also, V is such a great character. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, his, his impact on the society. Yeah, abs yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that the movie version did great justice to the comic book. So I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day putting the two up against each other, Desert Island, V for Vendetta. Okay. Yeah. I just wish it was more science fiction-y because then I can cover it here. It just happens in like a relatively like near future dystopia. Right. So there's no actual science fiction element to it per se. With closer to fantasy? Yeah, I would I would say so. Or just like, or more like alternate reality potential okay. kind of thing. Kind of like Hands Made Tale. I'm aware of its existence. Mm. That's it. It's it's a head fuck. That's a it's a serious uh, commentary on potential and and just like religious influence on society and particularly women. I mean, or just like patriarchy in general. But yeah. Um, at any rate, it, it also lends to the fact that movies and anime or comic books, vice versa, always lend very nicely to each other. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the Matrix, the Animatrix. Oh yeah, is the shit. Yeah, I, I I would say it's the best part of the Matrix franchise. I just started rewatching it tonight yeah. and uh, immediately blown away. Like, uh, I know I watched it when it first came out, but it's so cool. Well, I, I came across it because I was like, okay, there's I've seen the three movies and really like, yeah, we're going to get into this. The first movie stands alone, in my opinion, with two and three being like a continuation of the same part of the story that didn't necessarily need to be told. Agreed. But the prequel nature of the Animatrix is intriguing to me. Just all of the various art and, you know, the way that the storyline is so cohesive. I like it's, it's just such a brilliant piece to me. Agreed. I like that they were able to take that story that uh, Morpheus tells us in the first movie of how the origin of the whole thing happened yeah. from what his 
kind of folklore passed down to him while he's telling uh, a Neo about it. And they kind of, they didn't kind of, they showed you what happened. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, because you're always curious about those things, right? Like similarly to why the prequels for Star Wars was made. Right. You know, why the books are being written and the canon is expanding is because people are interested in it. And, you know, like, I think that because the Matrix was inspired by a lot of things, like you couldn't necessarily call Neuromancer, the novel by William Gibson, a prequel to the Matrix because it has nothing to do with the storyline. But it's such a heavy inspiration that for the longest time, people were like, okay, well, that's the unofficial lead up or prequel to the potential of where society got to or like a post-society machine run kind of deal that you see in the first Matrix. But to, but to have an actual canon-based backstory is awesome. And I definitely aim to rewatch the Animatrix now. As I mean, I should have rewatched it as part of this, so I'm just going from memory. But when it did drop, I was just, like, stoked. Like, this is tight that I there's more to it that is actually meaningful. Because 2 and 3 are not meaningful. No, they're not. They don't even button up the story in the way that we want it. It's, it seems like a Fast and the Furious that never ends. You That's could, how I felt about the second. Absolutely. Hour-long car chasing. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, the king guy was the only guy I kind of was interested in. Now I don't care. But, but yeah, it, it is. The story is superfluous. I think that if you could have taken the side story of like a, a fake-out ending of Neo on the phone and then he goes and fights all the Agent Smiths, you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. Like he's come back and has infected the... Okay, well, you know what? Yeah. We're going to save it for the synopsis because we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, but so, like, what is the actual matrix, right? Like, that's another question. The matrix represents a system of control that operates completely in the mind. As a complex machine-driven program, it appropriates any personal, political, or ideological leanings and renders them wholly false. Like, that's basically the whole reason or the meaning behind the matrix is that it allows illusions but no action. And speaking to that function, the Matrix films, according to the co-directors, are about being transgender. Okay. They're, they are both transgender. Yes. They say that, you know, that was the original intention, but the world wasn't quite ready. Uh, Lily Wachowski, the, one of the sisters. They couldn't be more right at the time. They wasn't ready. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, the character Switch, for instance, who was killed off in the first film, was meant to be a man in the real world. And a woman, while in the Matrix, although that aspect was scrapped due to the climate in Hollywood at the time, regarding the acknowledgement of trans people. And thankfully, that's becoming a practice of the past with a lot more work to do, undoubtedly. But, you know, it, it's, it's interesting as time progresses, you know, people you know, look at the lens of the times at properties from the past. And I think that pieces of film and literature that stand the test of time are able to be looked at through various lenses. Yeah. So I would say within that respect, the original Matrix, again, I don't mean to separate two and three in this thought realm, because as a trilogy, it speaks to this whole concept. Right. But the story itself is a brilliant story. A lot of people shit on the Matrix. There's this whole thing like, oh, well, the concept of using humans as batteries. The science doesn't have to be accurate. Exactly. It's fiction. It's fiction. It's not real. Oh, yeah. No. You're forgetting the fiction part of science fiction, you assholes. No, like, yeah. The the story, like the, the the idea behind the whole Matrix, everything, like from beginning to end, all even, I don't like, I'm not going to lie. I don't, not a big fan of two and three. Yeah. But what they did was really great, you know? Yeah. Visually, 
you know, the story editing, because there are, I've seen directors cut versions of two and three that are different than like television or airplane versions. You know what I mean? Like better, better cut for time. And there is a little bit more exposition that is important in those. But oftentimes when you see a director's cut, it's like in a completely different movie. This isn't the case here. Right. Because like there, there is not a lot of fat on the story. Right. Like, yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, well executed in that respect, but you know, oftentimes the underlying themes and meanings of a film, you know, that are shown throughout the franchise are lost amid action sequences and sound bites. Because when you think of The Matrix, you think of it as an action movie series, which it is. It is. But, you know, I, I think that that sometimes takes away from the potential translations and underlying meanings. Well, and especially the first Matrix movie is... is, is Iconic in that respect. It's cooler yeah. than just uh, the action, which is obviously, it was huge. It was groundbreaking from mm. the visual things that they did with the bullet KM or whatever it's called. But the psychological uh, story behind the whole thing, that kind of head fuck that it gives you, like it, it was... It, I still to this day I can't really think of one that's affected me in that way to really like when you leave you like think about things differently like it's, a, it's not a possibility but what if you know like it's 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 crazy yeah and the like like we already t touched on us the story behind the whole matrix thing that I don't have issue with any of it yeah I, I don't I, don't I think either. it's a great story my my peeves are with the way it was told and given to like certain parts that they dwelled on when they were obviously going after the action stuff a little bit too much when I wanted more of the meat. I wanted the story. Yeah, agreed. One does a better job in that respect in two or three because there was this precedence that was set like, oh, we have to top this already extreme action movie Yeah, with even more Michael Bay style, you know, like you said, that tr that the whole car chase scene was masturbation. Yeah, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like exactly. it, it, it had no real, it didn't serve any other purpose besides being purely action, which is fine. I mean, there are there oh, it, yeah. there are scenes that could be that way, but when you get above like the sixty percent mark of like relying on just action for the sake of action, mm -hmm. like if you were to take out all of the chunks, all the good stuff from one and stack it up against all the good chunks of two and three, or at least important information, you know, you know yeah, like there's no two and three look like an afterthought. Exactly. I mean, they tell more of a story in one than that you could put piece together from the other two. Yeah. Is uh, the from beginning to end. It's absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite character or at least one that you identify with the most? <laughs> well, I think I'm, my favorite character is I is the whole, I love Morpheus. Yep. But the one that I identify with the most, if I was in that world, it would be, uh, uh, what's this Joey Pants' character? <laughs> Sidekeeper? Sidekeeper. <laughs> yeah, I'd turn on everybody in a heartbeat, dude. Yeah. If I could go back into the Matrix and eat a steak and not wear fucking rags and shit. I mean, yeah, I guess you, like, once you're out of the Matrix, you can't, like, permanently jack back in. Is that the thing? Or, like, you'd have to go back into a pod? Well, that was the deal that he had with right. the agent, is that he was going to go back. I don't know, man. I kind of don't blame him. I get it. I don't you know, blame him like, either. Yeah, I do get it. He did fuck some people over, so fuck him. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, Everybody. That was not cool. Most of the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar did. Yep. R.I.P. Tank. Yeah. Yeah. That was, or was it Dozer? I was just going to say, was it Tank? I think it was... 
It was Dozer. It Dozer, was Dozer. Dozer got off. Dozer got off. Chuck survives. Oh, man. Well, Mouse. No, Mouse was taken out by agents. Yep, Mouse was taken out by agent. Uh, Switch was taken out by, by Cypher. <laughs> Not like this. Not like this. Yeah, which That's is a great scene. It's a great scene. I'm great that line. Scene, dude, I thought she was the baddest of them all. Agreed. The only one wearing all white, too, I think, was. Oh, in the, the first one? Yeah, in the first one. Yeah. Was the whole shtick. All right, so speaking of the movies, why don't we get into the plot of the original film with some supplementary info on the other two movies, yeah? Okay. All right. So starting off with The Matrix... At an abandoned hotel, a police squad corners Trinity, who overpowers them with superhuman abilities. She flees, pursued by the police and a group of suited agents capable of similar superhuman feats. She answers a ringing public telephone and vanishes, which, as an opening scene, is bad to the fucking ass. Right. And in the opening scene, you actually see her vanish? Mm. You see the... Oh, that's right. She puts, she puts her hand up to the... You don't know. That's right. You don't know what happened. That's absolutely right. That's true. Cut to computer programmer Thomas Anderson, known by his hacking alias Neo, it is puzzled by repeated online encounters with the phrase The Matrix. Trinity contacts him and tells him a man named Morpheus has the answers Neo seeks. A team of agents and police, led by Agent Smith, arrives at Neo's workplace in search of him. Though Morpheus attempts to guide Neo to safety, Neo surrenders rather than risk a dangerous escape, which it is, I mean, like, are you afraid of heights? I'm, an, I'm enough afraid of heights to do not do any of that. Yeah. I'm not going to go on the edge of a building. No, never. Hey. Yeah. No, I, I mean, like, not that I have an innate fear of heights per se. I think I have a healthy respect of heights. Right. But I just, I don't know that I would I would put myself in that situation. No it way. does not seem legit. <laughs> the agents offer to erase Neo's criminal record in exchange for his help with locating Morpheus, who they claim is a terrorist. When Neo refuses to cooperate, they fuse his mouth shut, pin him down, and implant a robotic bug in his abdomen. Is there anything creepier than the mouth scene? The mouth scene scared me so much as a kid. It was so creepy. It is one of my. It was one of my biggest like irrational fears yeah. at that point. Um, Neo wakes up from what he believes to be a nightmare, and soon after is taken by Trinity to meet Morpheus, and she removes the bug from Neo, confirming that it was in fact a legit thing that happened to him, or at least in the matrix that we come to find out right morpheus offers neo a choice between two pills taking the red pill which will reveal the truth about the matrix or the blue which will make neo forget everything and return to his former life neo of course takes the red pill and his reality begins to distort awakening in a liquid filled pod among countless other pods containing other humans which that's another scary scene yeah i mean like so like we've all woken up from crazy dreams yeah. Or, you know, like you're, you fall asleep in the airport and you like jar awake and you're like, oh shit, that's right. I'm on the municipal airport. Yeah. You know, like imagine that, but you're in a towering pod that has like electric fucking currents running up the side of it. And you're just yeah. like, here's all of humanity just like fucking powering these machines. Oh, he's never seen anything. Right. He's, that? Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that would be as jarring as us just waking Wait, up out of nowhere exactly. in the exact same situation. Yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> he's then brought aboard Morpheus's flying ship, the Nebuchadnezzar, after being fucking goo dumped. <laughs> goo dumped. That's right. As Neo recuperates from a lifetime of physical inactivity in the pod, Morpheus explains the situation. Here's how it breaks down. In the early 21st century, a war broke out between humanity and intelligent machines. 
After humans blocked the machine's access to solar energy, the machines responded by enslaving humankind and harvesting their bioelectric power while keeping their minds pacified in the Matrix, a shared simulated reality modeled on the world as it was in 1999. Which, if you're going to pacify somebody, it makes sense. Right. You know, like you would feed them, you know, what, what they know. Well, for sure. Is everything familiar? Yeah, every, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a great Twilight Zone reboot that Jordan Peele did. There's a great episode about a, a group of astronauts who are leaving Earth to go to Mars, and as they're leaving, an incoming nuclear missile is coming to, like, their launch pad. So they make the decision to leave, and it turns out that it's all a simulation run by aliens to see how they would all react. And it's just, like, such an interesting... Th like, the whole simulation theory concept to me is very interesting, although... If you're listening to this, the likelihood that we are in a base reality, who knows? I mean, like, don't don't test it uh, unless you are willing to suffer the consequences of our very real shared reality. <laughs> follow your dreams. Yeah. Follow, <laughs> yes, follow your dreams. Follow the white rabbit. Yes. <laughs> in the years following, the remaining free humans took refuge in the underground city of Zion, but we will get to that when we talk about two and three. Right. Morpheus and his crew are a group of rebels who hack into the Matrix to, quote, unplug enslaved humans and recruit them. Their understanding of the Matrix's simulated natures allows them to bend its physical laws. Morpheus warns Neo that death within the Matrix kills the physical body, too, and explains that the agents are sentient programs that eliminate threats to the system, while machines called sentinels eliminate rebels in the real world. And, dude, those sentinels are fucking gnarly. Yeah, they're dope. They're huge. Like, I mean, you know, you see in some of the, especially in two and three. So like that, the Zion fight scene is dope. Yeah, I did. When they're coming through as yes. mostly. And that fuck orgy in number two. Oh, fuck that thing. The whole, the whole cave I orgy. Like, I mean. So much beef with Zion. I really do. Oh, we'll get to it then. Cause <laughs> I, I mean, I'm an anti-Zionist, but for different, for different reasons. Neo's prowess during virtual training cements Morpheus's belief that Neo is the one, which of course is an anagram of Neo a human prophesized to free humankind. The group enters the Matrix to visit the Oracle, a prophet-like program who predicted that the One would emerge. She implies to Neo that he is not the One and warns that he will have to choose between Morpheus's life and his own. And I would argue, actually, that uh, that Morpheus is the One, but that's a whole other rabbit hole sure. going on through that because he serves the purpose of delivering the person who can right. broker peace with the machine. Yeah, he's... John the Baptist of this story. Sure. And, and what's with the kid fucking up all the Oracle spoons and her not saying shit? <laughs> if you ask me, that kid was a breath. Just being like super, like, there is no spirit. Well, that's great for you. But, like, I can't meditate, you dickhead. Like, I, you know, we live in late stage capitalism. Before they can leave the Matrix, agents and the police ambush the group, tipped off by Cypher, that douchebag, a disgruntled crew member who was betrayed Morpheus in exchange for a deal to be plugged back into the Matrix to live a comfortable life. He's like, I know I can't actually taste this stamp. I, I love it. That's but it's so just, fucking good. It's like, it, it, that's a great scene, actually. Princess Bliss. Yes, exactly. And you know what? To a degree, he's kind of right. Yeah. To buy time for the others, Morpheus fights Smith and is captured. Cypher exits the Matrix and murders the other crew members as they lie unconscious. Or rather, tapped into the Matrix. I mean, like, yeah. you're not technically... I guess you are unconscious because your consciousness is, like... World, dude, right, in a physical sense. In a different yeah, state. that's true. Before Cypher can kill Neo and Trinity, crew member Tank regains consciousness and kills him before pulling Neo out and Trinity from the Matrix. So, again, R.I.P. Dozer, then. Yeah. 
The agents interrogate Morpheus and learn his access codes to the mainframe computer in Zion, which would allow them to destroy it. Neo resolves to return to the Matrix to rescue Morpheus, as the Oracle prophesized. While rescuing Morpheus, Neo gains confidence in his abilities, performing feats comparable to those of the agents. After Morpheus and Trinity safely exit the Matrix, Smith ambushes and kills Neo, while a group of Sentinels attack the Nebuchadnezzar, Trinity confesses her love for Neo and says the Oracle told her she would fall in love with the One. Which, I've seen those documentaries. <laughs> It's a real cuckold situation if I've ever seen one. It's but um, anywho, uh, Neo is revived with the newfound abilities to perceive and control the Matrix. He easily defeats Smith, prompting the other agents to flee, and he leaves the Matrix just as the ship's electromagnetic pulse disables the Sentinels. Lucky timing. Cool scene. Cool scene, for sure. EMPs play a huge role in this whole story. Yeah. Especially leaning into two. See, like when I first saw two and three, I was a little bit younger and I didn't appreciate like how the stories actually lined into each other. But it just all seems added still yet, even though. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, back in the Matrix, Neo places a phone call promising the machines. I guess like he just calls the machines because they, they have like a like, oh, yeah. number. Hey, machines. That he will show their prisoners a world where anything is possible. He then hangs up and flies away just to flex, which I guess... Yeah. <laughs> which is also a cool scene. Yeah, by the way, I could do this. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> like the fucking, like, ripping in the... the yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is the perfect new metal ending. Oh, like, it is, though. It, it was dope, especially for the time. Every new... Not to say that Rage is new metal, but, like, every new metal kid just was, like... Man, I wish that I could fucking fly away in a trench coat <laughs> with those awesome glasses. That's the first one. The first one is, yeah, is a good standalone story. Yep. Um, you know, but I guess moving on to The Matrix Reloaded, uh, <laughs> six months after the events of The Matrix, because I guess, like, that's just a standard for when you continue a story, like, six months later. Six in. months later. So, like, time is irrelevant in The Matrix. What are we talking, talking about? <laughs> anyway, six months later, after the events of The Matrix, Neo and Trinity are now romantically involved. Morpheus receives a message from Captain Niobe of the Logos calling an emergency meeting of all ships in Zion. An army of Sentinels is tunneling towards Zion and will reach it within 72 hours. Bummer. In Zion, Morpheus announces the news of the advancing machines. The Nebuchadnezzar leaves Zion and enters the Matrix. Wait, the ship enters the Matrix? That can't be... No, no. Well, no, I know, but, like, the way that this is written, because I, I get these synopses from Wikipedia, shout out Wikipedia.com. I guess maybe not shout out Wikipedia.com in this respect, because the Nebuchadnezzar certainly does not enter the Matrix. So. Sure doesn't. But in this scenario, they're still on the event horizon. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a safety boat. <laughs> nice. Dude, that scene when he recollects the dude who decompresses out of the airlock and he like, oh man, that's such a gnarly scene. The whole movie is fucked. Also, talk about head fuck. Oh yeah, well, so I'm, <laughs> for the Dark Arts Festival, which takes place in late October here in Portland, I covered Event Horizon and with Billy Chambers, a comedian who came up from Salem and now lives in Portland. And I showed the blood orgy scene to oh, yeah. a group of people, and it was all slowed down. <laughs> and I've never seen so many faces like, I know I've seen this movie, 
Yeah. And I know I've seen this scene in like its like it's original so frame. Down. It's terrible. Like, dude, it is like because sometimes they hover frame by frame in this version for like three or four seconds per frame. So you're I like, I don't even want to see it. That's a spike coming out the wrong way that's already covered in maggots. What is happening right AMTs now? Keys and pipe sodomy and all sorts of crazy fucking shit. All right. So what that's all into. Yeah. That, hey, that's. Yeah. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. So long as it's consensual. Yeah. This was the 90s. We weren't ready. No, that's that's very true. The 90s were not ready. All right, so the Nebuchadnezzar leaves Zion, and them folks enter the Matrix, where Neo beats the Oracle's bodyguard, Seraph, who leads him to her. That was a great fight scene, too. He's like, I just, as he's about to get his ass handed to him, he's like, wait, just had to make sure you were the one. Oh, yeah. He's just like, no, bro, you're about to get handled. We're cool. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. The Oracle reveals that she is part of the Matrix and instructs Neo to reach its source with the help of the Keymaker. I am the Keymolder. Everybody's from Ghostbusters. I am the Keymaker. Are you the Gatekeeper? Yeah, I am the Keymaster. As the Oracle departs, Smith appears telling Neo that after being defeated by him, he became a rogue program. Uh, he demonstrates his ability to clone himself and other inhabitants of the Matrix, including all of the upgraded agents. He tries to take over Neo's body but fails, prompting a battle between Neo and many copies of Smith. Neo defends himself but is forced to retreat. Now, that is a cool fight scene, but the CGI do be lacking, though. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. For the time, it was pretty boss, but, like, if you compare it to anything now, it's, At like, time, back and it's kind of cheesy. It, they pushed it. It wasn't there yet. It wasn't there tell, yet. Even then, I remember, like, the whole pipe spinning yep. scene. I'm like, oh, no, that doesn't It was real. too much. Yeah. It, it looked like a cutscene from a video game at the time where, like, the video game plays garbage, but the cutscene's awesome. Yeah. It was. It kind of had that vibe. Anyway, after the crew snags the keymaker from the Frenchman, and uh, that's the, what, the, here's the dumbest name. What is his name again? I don't know. Something. The Merovingian. Yeah. Stupid. Super hot wife. Yep. True that. <laughs> anyway, after the crew snags the keymaker from the Frenchman, Morpheus defeats those ghost twins in an epic sequence. That's that car chase, which it is good. It is a good scene. It's a good fight scene. The ghost aspect was kind of neat. Yeah. Oh, I think those like those guys' ability were cool, but I can't. I, I can't, and I'm not interested. Of trying to get over the fact that their hairlines are fucking ridiculous, and I can't get past seeing the middle of the top of their head. Yeah, I'm just like I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, the um, and how you see yours. Oh, they're programmed, so it's not it's a, the white frosted nope ropes were an interesting, <laughs> you know. And then again, the CGI on them, yeah, was not anything to write home about. But it was cool, especially at the time too, like making them like these ghost dudes that would phase in and out of physical form. It was. I did like that. It was pretty sick. Like when they when they phase out, they're in the backseat of the car. They phase out they to be on like the highway. Yes, when they're in that form, that was pretty cool. And their kills were pretty good too. Yeah. All right. So Neo eventually meets a program called the Architect, the creator of the Matrix, who explains that as the one Neo himself, an intentional part of the design of the Matrix, which is now at its sixth iteration, is you know like meant to stop the Matrix's fatal system crash that naturally recurs due to the concept of human choice within it. So basically, it's a fail-safe for the AI to say, like, okay, there's too much human influence, we need to start over and you know, pull the veil back down over our power source, if you will. Like, right. people, you know, like, the simulation was just like those glitches in the Matrix, like, when, when it happens in the first one, when they're going up the stairwell with yeah. the cat, there, you know, all of that cascading glitching is, like, 
that's the whole reason for awakening Neo, if you will. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But again, Morpheus has that in from the Oracle, so he's trying to awaken him for the benefit of humankind. See, that's another thing that was kind of lost on me the first few times was that whole reason. Like, why are they tapping into this dude other than that oh, really? having experienced? Yeah, seriously. No, they, like that was lost on me the first couple of times okay. that I saw it when I was a kid. Yeah. Because again, it, it, you know, also being younger, like you just see it as an action film. Right. Not for the underlying story or just like all the different connections. Because I'm a repeat one. Like, I, I have to watch things more than once. I, I always do watch things yeah. once if I enjoy them, especially. Yeah. That's, yep, definitely. So, all right. As with the five previous ones, Neo has a choice. Either reboot the Matrix from the source and pick a handful of survivors to repopulate the soon-to-be-destroyed Zion, as his predecessors all did, or go to save the Imperiled Trinity, causing the Matrix to crash and killing everyone in it. Neo chooses the latter, prompting a dismissive response from the Architect. Neo is haunted by a vision of Trinity dying throughout the film, and this vision comes true as she is shot by Agent Thompson while falling off of a building. Before she hits the ground, Neo arrives and catches her, which that scene when he's flying through the city and like just like cars and random oh, shit are like just getting destroyed yeah. on his speed wake. <laughs> it's so gnarly. It's freaking rad. Freaking rad. He then removes the bullet from her chest and restarts her heart, which was pretty bass. Yeah. They return to the real world where sentinels are attacking them. The Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed, but the crew does escape. As the Sentinels catch up to them, Neo realizes he's able to sense the machines in the real world and telepathically destroys them but falls into a coma from the effort. The crew are picked up by another ship, the Hammer, and its captain reveals that other ships defending Zion were wiped out by the machines after someone prematurely activated the EMP. This was a point that was lost on me as well because I was so ingrained in the action sequence from when neo put you know like he he goes to stop the sentinels and then collapses yeah it didn't dawn on me that bane was the smith possessed survivor of that action where smith got himself while this dude was hacked into the matrix and pulled a neo basically reverse neo reverse neo yeah. and then was like oh tight let me activate this emp is that was all lost on me really when i was younger absolutely yeah, you must have, yeah but you were younger yes yeah all right let's wrap things up with the matrix revolutions because you know we pick up immediately where reloaded ended and neo and bane still lie unconscious head to head in the medical bay of the ship hammer Inside the Matrix, Neo's trapped at a subway station named Mobile Avenue, a uh, transition zone between the Matrix and the machine world. He meets a, quote, family of programs, including a girl named Sati. The father tells Neo the subway is controlled by the train man, a program loyal to the Merovingian. Again, hot-ass wife, though. Hot-ass yeah. wife, though. Persephone. Ter terrible name. Yes. Hot-ass wife. Yes. <laughs> sweet-ass sweet setup. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good style. Oh, yeah. He's impeccable snapper. I'd like to try that cake. Indeed. <laughs> you mean his wife? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, hey, when Neo tries to board a train with the family, the train man refuses and overpowers him. Through intimidation, though, the Merovingian, that French guy, releases Neo from the train platform. In the real world, the crews of the Nebuchadnezzar and the Hammer find and reactivate Niobe's ship, the Logos. They interrogate Bane, who says he has no recollection of the earlier massacre. As the captains plan their defenses of Zion, Neo requests the ship to travel to the Machine City. Motivated by her encounter with the Oracle, Niobe offers him the Logos. Neo departs, accompanied by Trinity. Bane, who is stowed away on the Logos, takes Trinity hostage. Neo realizes that Bane has been assimilated by Smith, and a fight ensues. Bane burns Neo's eyes with a power cable, blinding him, which, whew. Yeah. 
That's got to hurt. Yeah, well, it'd kill you. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, anyone else. I mean, I, I yeah. feel like he still has that influence of like, you know, I'm, uh, I, he has the power of the one in the real world still. He just doesn't know it yet. Right. All the way. All the way. If you honest, the two, <laughs> that'd be it. Neo discovers that he can still see machine source code in the real world and uses this ability to kill Bane. Trinity then pilots them to the machine city. Niobe and Morpheus rush towards Zion in the hammer to aid in the humans' defenses of the city. Zion's shipyard is overwhelmed by a horde of sentinels, and the fatally wounded Captain Mifune instructs Kid to open the gate for the hammer, which he does with the aid of Z. Great names in the future. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really well thought out. Really well thought out. Uh, also, they don't they didn't mention in this the massive fuck orgy from the night before. <laughs> When uh, Niobe comes and she's like, yeah, so we got 72 hours. Basically, like, Morpheus makes that announcement to all of Zion. And then the fucking drum and bass or the, like, the EDM rate starts. So it's like, let's go. Like, hey, man, I mean, you know, when, when you got 72 hours, you, you got, it's, you best get to fucking. Yeah. And I like how in Zion, especially in Sport Touch on this, that they have the ability to create and maintain these hover cars but they can't make new fucking clothes or a washing machine to fucking clean them in. <laughs> yeah, the city is, like, actually kind of advanced. I mean, it is in a key. Insanely. They have a dispatch station that looks like you could make microchips in it. Right, seriously. Decked out in white suits. Everyone else is wearing burlap sacks. It's fucking gross. I'd have to look back in the animatrix because I want to know how old Zion is. Like, I, I know that they oh, get yeah. into, that, into, like, the timeline, so I, I definitely want to, you know, because they show the world as it is in the Matrix in 1999. And they say, so, like, they say how old it is in the first movie. Right. Ah, oh, yeah, that's right. As I can't remember, right? Well, that's what the facts section is for. Uh, awesome. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we will get to that in the facts section. When the hammer arrives, it discharges its EMP, disabling all the sentinels present, but also Zion's remaining defenses, which six in one, half a dozen in the other, you're fucked. Yeah. Uh, the humans are forced to retreat and wait for the second attack, thinking it will be their last stand. The Logos is attacked by a wave of machines outside the machine city, and to avoid the onslaught, they fly above them to open sky and then crash into a building, fatally wounding Trinity. Neo enters the machine city and encounters the leadership of the machines in the form of the deus ex machina, which that fucker is gnarly looking. It is like an amalgamation of all the different machine works and shit like that. It's super crazy. It's one of the coolest, like, representations of AI through machinery that I've seen in science fiction. For sure. They reused, like, a similar version in all sorts of shit now. Yeah, oh, Totally. Neo warns that Smith plans to conquer both the Matrix and the real world and offers to stop Smith in exchange for peace with Zion. The deus ex machina agrees and the Sentinels shut down, stopping the attack on Zion. The machines plug Neo into the Matrix, whose population has been entirely assimilated by Smith. The Smith with the Oracle's power steps forth, telling Neo that he has foreseen his victory against him. After a protracted fight, and that's a great way to put it, Neo appears to concede defeat and allows himself to be assimilated. That old trick. Outside the Matrix, the machines send a surge of energy into Neo's body, which inside the Matrix causes the Neo-Smith clone, then all of the other Smith clones, to be destroyed, leaving the Oracle lying there and causing Neo's life to be sacrificed. Which, I mean, you know, like, the sacrificial martyrdom was... You could see it kind of from implied, a, yeah, 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 it's kind of implied that it's going to happen, especially, like, when they go on that suicide mission, if you will, to the machine city. Right. The Matrix is then rebooted, and the Architect meets with the Oracle in a park. They agree that the peace will last as long as it can, and that those humans who desire it will be offered the opportunity to leave the Matrix. And that's kind of where, like, things are let off with Resurrections. Right. 
you know, because like the story isn't continued from there until Resurrections because the Animatrix deals with the prequel or setup pre-information of the series. I, in my head, did the Animatrix come out after the third after, one? No, I think I it came out after the first one. Yeah, it did. Okay. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is it, well, insofar as that, like all of canon was considered after the end of three, like that, like that was the the Matrix franchise. Yeah. So let's talk about a, a little bit about Resurrections. Did it need to be made? No. Yeah, agreed. The Matrix Resurrections is a 2021 American science fiction action film produced, co-written, and directed by only Lana Wachowski and being the first in the Matrix franchise to be directed solely by her without her sister Lily. It is the sequel to The Matrix Revolutions, which is interesting, uh, like, that they would call it a sequel to that movie in particular and not a follow-up to the franchise. Right. But they, do, they call it the fourth installment, which is more accurate, of the, the Matrix film franchise. Uh, the film stars Keanu Reeves, of course, and Kiri and Moss reprising their roles. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who replaces Lawrence Fishburne. I'm curious as to why he didn't come back. I have to look further into that. And uh, Jessica Henwick and Jonathan Groff, who replaces Hugo Weaving. NPA, shout out Neil Patrick Harris. Priyanka Chopra Jonas, Christina Ricci, and Jada Pinkett Smith coming back as Niobe. The film is set 60 years after Revolutions and follows Neo, who lives a seemingly ordinary life as a video game developer, having trouble with distinguishing fantasy from reality. Sound familiar? <laughs> a group of rebels, with the help of a programmed version of Morpheus, free Neo from a new version of the Matrix and fight a new enemy that holds Trinity captive. Wait, I didn't know it was supposed to be 60 years later. That's right. That's so he's what, like 120? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I, yeah, I, I mean, like, his physical form, well, his yeah. physical form has, w was killed. Yeah. See, this is why I need to, like, I, I've not taken the time to really I give Resurrections it. its its consideration. Yeah. I don't know. I, I need to not prejudge. For sure. So no, much. I'm the same way as I know I need to watch it again. The story, I guess, does get a little bit better from there, but I'm afraid it's largely action-based and feels like an add-on. I mean, it feels like it. And the first movie alone was good enough story that it didn't need to get the trilogy treatment per se. So this story definitely feels like how Disney's padding, like the existing Star Wars universe with new stuff. Yeah. You know, not to say that like that, like the stuff, the majority of the stuff that they make isn't good. It is. It's, it's like adding more in my, if we're going to talk about Star Wars, it's, it's like adding more to the Skywalker saga. Sure. You never had to do that. Nope. The the Mandalorian stuff, that's all new. That's great. Real, that's great new stories. Rogue One. Fantastic. Fantastic. Andor, uh, I wasn't going to watch it and then I decided and I couldn't stop watching it and I binged it. Like, I will take, I will take that as a good wreck. Yeah. It's a, it's a great show. Nice. Well, all that is to say that I dig the Matrix. I mean, it's it, you know, it's, yeah. it's something that I grew up with, and I love it just for the nostalgia factor alone, you know, and being able to look at it again through you know different context and not just in the realm of like, man, what a great you know action movie because it is a great action movie, but it says so much more. So yeah. when you said that you wanted to cover the Matrix, I was like, oh no, let's like really boot in and get <laughs> and, into yeah. the Matrix. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's the it's it's one of those stories that I'm so glad that I came out at the at when when I was the age I was, you know, because I could really absorb it, and really think about it, and and I've been with it for years now, and and so it's easier to go back and and like talk shit about the second and third one, like kind of like I I have no desire to watch the second and third one ever again. Right. I just watched the second one, and I, it was so hard for me to get through it. Yeah, we were texting, and you were like, <laughs> I'm getting through it. Yeah, I was so frustrated, because <laughs> I just like this. Well, here's my big beef. 
just talking about for a movie, not about plot or silly shit that's about Zion or anything like that. The first movie, you have Hugo Weaving mm-hmm. and Lawrence Fishburne, two high-caliber actors delivering dialogue that the only guys like that, people like that, can deliver. Dude. And then in the second movie, they're doing the same dialogue with almost every character, and I'm like, what are you doing? Hugo Weaving's delivery of the line when he's interrogating Morpheus, oh, where wait. he's like, your scent repulses me. Like, yeah. like that whole, dude, that, the delivery of, the, and, and the way that Lawrence Fishburne, his reactions are, and like his physical acting in that, just like, it, you can't compare two and three to one. It's impossible. Like, like it, it is just so well executed. Right. Even Keanu's acting was good. It was one. fantastic. Yeah. That was exactly what he was supposed to yes. be. He was believable as this guy that's looking for something that he doesn't know what it is and then finds himself mixed up in a world he doesn't understand and then tries to come to figure out who he is. You know, and like the first movie is, it's a masterpiece. It really is. Absolutely agree. And that's why I love it. Like, I love the whole franchise because I will say that I talk shit about two and three now, but back then. Oh, they were. I I was in the theater. Sure. Oh, of course. Of course. As was I. Yeah. I know. I saw it. It was awesome. And then I played the video game. And then, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's right. The video game. Damn. That was dope. I'll I'll have to boot up an old version of that, too. (laughs) So, Corey, tell me this what's coming up in your comedy schedule? My comedy schedule is just mics, you know, still really yeah. new. I'm just going to yeah. start hitting it hard again. Like, I recently uh, took booze out of the equation for my comedy so that I can focus more on my sets and getting better and actually building a set rather than just doing new material all the time or doing the same material without improving anything. Nice, yeah, totally. So I'm working on that. Uh, and on the 17th of this month, I'll be playing music in New Brunfels at the Iron Horse Lounge. Tight. The, the boys Wilson will be playing there. For well, all you folks out there, 30 minutes outside of Austin, Texas, you go check out Corey at New Brunfels. He's going to be laying down some awesome tracks. Well, hey, man, you know, thank you so much for joining me. It was awesome. Thanks for I, having I, me. We'll be miking around until you head out to Austin with, Heck. not with AJ Valentine, but yeah. you know, <laughs> same. But yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll you'll encounter each other out there. We're going to give him a good send off too, man. So, Heck yeah. right on. Well, thanks again. Sweet. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Make sure to follow Corey as he heads to Texas. He's a super funny guy and a really talented musician and singer. Now that we're riding high on that post-goo dump clarity, how's about some facts behind the Matrix franchise and its influence on society? Let's start off with the latter and take a look at how the concept of simulation theory warped some minds a little too far. Like how some people decided to test whether they're in a simulation or not by committing various levels of crimes. The Matrix defense is a legal defense based on the premise of the film franchise The Matrix, of course, in which reality is a computer generation and the real world is different from what reality is popularly perceived to be. A defendant using this defense claims that they committed a crime because they believed that they were in a simulated world, like The Matrix, and not in the real world. You know, the one with like schedules and deadlines and all sorts of other actual responsibilities and consequences. A defendant could allege they never intended death for their victim because they believed the victim to be alive in the other reality, even though that's exactly not how the Matrix works. Did they not even watch the fucking movie? This is a version of the insanity defense and considered a descendant of the taxi driver defense of John Hinckley, one of the first defenses based on blurring reality with films. He's the guy who unfortunately unsuccessfully attempted to assassinate President Reagan in the 80s. 
Regardless of whether the defendant believes that they were living within the simulated world, this defense has been used in cases where the accused were sent to mental care facilities instead of prisons. For instance, Tonda Lynn Ainsley of Hamilton, Ohio was found not guilty by reason of insanity using this defense after shooting her landlady in the head in July of 2002. Vadim Masejis of San Francisco offered a Matrix explanation to police after chopping up his landlady and was declared mentally incompetent to stand trial. I mean, I get it, like, kill all landlords, but also, what's up with killing all these landladies with the Matrix defense? Alright, we also have Joshua Cook's lawyers who were going to attempt this defense in 2003 in his trial for the murder of his adoptive parents before he eventually pleaded guilty. In the case of Lee Malvo, who participated in the sniper shootings of 30 victims in 2002, he also included references to The Matrix, mentioning in the writings taken from his jail cell. Malvo reportedly shouted free yourself from The Matrix from his cell after his arrest, and told FBI agents to watch the film if they wanted to understand him. In other words, there are very real-world consequences for your actions, whether you believe you're in a simulation or not. Unless those consequences are also part of the Matrix. In which case, you wouldn't know, so we might as well be. Right? Alright, let's get into some actual facts about the franchise. Aside from the three films, the Matrix franchise is comprised of an animated series, games, and comic books. The Animatrix was produced in 2003 to coincide with the release of The Matrix Reloaded. This is a collection of nine animated short films intended to further flesh out the concepts, history, characters, and setting of the series. The objective of the Animatrix project was to give other writers and directors the opportunity to lend their voices and interpretation to the Matrix universe. The Wachowskis conceived of and oversaw the process, and they wrote four of the segments themselves, although they were given to other directors to execute. Many of the segments were produced by notable figures from the world of Japanese animation. Four of the films were originally released on the series' official website. One was shown in cinemas with Dreamcatcher. One was shown on MTV, MTV2, MTV3, MTV4, and Sci-Fi. And the others first appeared with the DVD release of all nine shorts shortly after the release of The Matrix Reloaded. Moving on to video games, on May 15, 2003, the game Enter the Matrix was released in North America concurrently with The Matrix Reloaded. The first of three video games related to the films, it told a story running parallel to The Matrix Reloaded and featured scenes that were shot during the filming of The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. Two more Matrix video games were released in 2005. The MMORPG The Matrix Online continued the story beyond The Matrix Revolutions, while The Matrix Path of Neo allowed players to control Neo in scenes from the film trilogy. Dope. The Matrix Online was shut down in 2009. The Matrix official website also provided several original Adobe Flash-based browser games, RIP Adobe Flash, uh, an interactive technology demonstration titled The Matrix Awakens was released on December 9th, 2021, around the time of the release of Resurrections. The Matrix Comics is a set of comics and short stories based on the series and written and illustrated by figures from the comics industry. One of the comics was written by the Wachowskis and illustrated by the film's concept artist Jeff Darrow. The comics and stories were originally presented for free on the Matrix series website between 1999 and 2003. One of them was printed in 1999 to be given away at theaters as a promotional item for The Matrix, but Warner Brothers recalled it due to its mature content. 
Most of them were later republished by the Wachowskis' Burly Man Entertainment, along with some news stories and updates with color to some of the existing ones in two printed trade paperback volumes in 2003 and 2004 and a deluxe hardcover 20th anniversary edition in 2019. Gah, that's a weird thing to say, but The Matrix is actually closer to 25 years old now, which means I'm getting old too. Aww. Here's how the box office breaks down. You can really see a trend of how the films performed and how they were received by audiences. The Matrix, from 1999, put up $467.2 million in the box office. That's a no-brainer. The movie had great marketing and was super dope at the time, but it pales in comparison to The Matrix Reloaded, which brought in $741.8 million. Whoa. Riding high on the success of the first film, this whopping draw is a testament to how much people loved the first movie and wanted to see what the sequel would bring. I mean, there's a reason why it's the highest grossing action film of its time. And wrapping up the trilogy, we have Revolutions also coming in at third, with $427.3 I mean, these kind of numbers for a third installment means that people didn't really like the second one as much as the first one at the end of the day, but were kind of invested and needed to know how the story ended. Or at least that's my take on things. And then we have Resurrections. Wah, wah. At a measly $159.1 million box office draw, it's a flop by comparison, with the public saying, did we need to go down that rabbit hole again? Alright, let's get into some facts specific to the first film. The Wachowskis worked on their vision for the movie for five and a half years. The final product arrived after working through 14 screenplay drafts, which took up to 500 storybooks. Also, after all that thinking time, the Wachowskis have both said that given Neo's choice, they would have probably taken the blue pill. Can't say that I blame them. Cypher's still a dick, though. When the Wachowski screenplay for Assassins in 1995 was being made for producer Joel Silver, they expressed their interest in directing a film. Silver was balled over by their screenplay, but not by their insistence that they direct the film themselves. They decided to cut their teeth at directing by making another film, which is why they made Bound in 1996. The success of that film proved to be the calling card that the Wachowskis needed to earn the trust of Warner Brothers to direct The Matrix themselves. John Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulation was required reading for all principal cast and crew. The book, which is about hyperreality and the imitation of real-world processes, can be found in Neo's apartment as well. It, along with Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Karl Marx, Franz Kafka, and Homer's Odyssey, were all hugely influential on the film. To prepare for his role in the series, Keanu Reeves was asked to read three books, the aforementioned Simulacra and Simulation, Out of Control by Kevin Kelly, and Introducing Evolution Psychology by Dylan Evans. Speaking of influence, Morpheus in Greek mythology is the god of dreams, which is ironic since he's the man who wakes people from their dream states and introduces them to reality. So when does the Matrix take place and over what time frame? Well, the date stamp on the phone trace program in the opening sequence reads February 18th, 1998, and in the closing sequence it reads September 18th, 1999. This means that the events in the movie take place over exactly 19 months, and it takes place sometime around the year 2199. We're not sure. Not even Morpheus is. The room that Neo, then Thomas Anderson, is in at the beginning of the film is number 101, a tribute to room 101 in George Orwell's 1984 in which a prisoner is subjected to their worst phobia. This number has been used throughout popular culture to signify a room where an item can be placed to never again be found. 
Neo has in turn been placed in room 101 by the machines as they do not want the one to be discovered. The musical key of the theme you hear at the beginning of every Matrix movie ascends by one semitone with each movie. The Matrix starts in the key of E, Reloaded is in F, and Revolutions is in the key of F sharp. The scores were composed by Don Davis, marking his most prominent work by far. All the scenes that take place within the Matrix have a green tint to them, as if you're watching them through a computer monitor, while scenes that take place in the quote real world have a normal coloring. The fight scene between Morpheus and Neo, which is not in the real world or in the Matrix, is tinted yellow because it's in the Construct, their training program world. For the cell phone conversation between Neo and Morpheus in the Metacortex office, Keanu Reeves actually climbed out of the window. By the way, the roots of the name of the company Neo works for are Meta, meaning going beyond or higher or transcending, and Cortex, meaning the outer layer or boundary of gray matter surrounding the brain. Thus, Metacortex literally means transcending the boundaries of the brain, which is precisely what Neo proceeds to do. The scene took place 34 floors up, without a stuntman, which is incredibly dangerous. Keanu is one of a handful of action stars who generally opt to do their own stunts, but he does occasionally allow for a stunt double. Numerous sets of identical twins were cast as extras in the Woman in Red scene, in which Morpheus takes Neo through a computer simulation of the Matrix. This was done to create the illusion of a repeating program. For instance, the tall man with the slick back hair and sunglasses in the opening shot is seen seconds later as a police officer writing a parking ticket. After the lobby shootout, the camera pans back showing the aftermath of the scene in the lobby. During this, a piece of one of the pillars falls off. This happens actually by coincidence during the filming and was not planned, but was left in since it seemed appropriate. The entire scene took 10 days to film and was done without CGI. Rather, it was all practical effects. Speaking of the first film, perhaps the biggest question in the movie is, why does the Oracle tell Neo he isn't the one when he clearly is? There are a number of answers to that question, one of which details why the Oracle is potentially the one herself, but the short answer to her behavior within the first film breaks down like this. As we know, after freeing Neo from his pod, Morpheus takes him to meet the Oracle, a prophet with a thing for baking cookies and smoking cigarettes. The Oracle spends a little time alone with Neo before basically telling him that he's not the one. The thing is though, Neo is the one. That's established firmly by the end of the film, and the Oracle is supposed to know everything, so why does she steer Neo wrong? If you look at the scene in detail, Neo is actually the one who says the words, I'm not the one, and the Oracle replies by saying, Sorry kid, you got the gift, but it looks like you're waiting for something. Shaken by the news, Neo presses her for more details, and that's when the Oracle begins to tell him about the importance of Morpheus to the resistance movement and how much Morpheus believes in him, to the point that she's sure one of them will die as a result of Morpheus's convictions. This inspires Neo to stay close to Morpheus and to rise to the occasion of saving his life at the end of the film, at which point his powers as the One begin to fully bloom. She even says that he has the potential to be the one in his next life, which is true, and also only happens due to Trinity's love and the prophecy she receives from the Oracle involving her and the one. So, the Oracle always knew Neo was the one, but she judged him as someone who wasn't ready to hear that. He needed to have faith in himself first. Plus, he needed to be willing to sacrifice his life for others. By telling him what she did, the Oracle pointed Neo in the right direction. Just like Morpheus said, she told him exactly what he needed to hear. Here's an 
interesting take on the whole situation of the Matrix and the one in general that I came across on Quora of all places, reigning internet answer source champ now that Yahoo Answers has been unplugged. The one is an illusion. Everybody forgets that Neo is presented with the pills in the Matrix. That means that the pills are part of the Matrix. That is a beautiful scene. You can see how the choice is literally reflected in the eyes of the apparent presenter of the choice, yet we cannot see those eyes. We only see the self-reflection of the choice maker in the choice. See, the problem is Morpheus doesn't exist. Neither does Trinity. Neither does any of the external world in which Neo resists the Matrix, Zion, any of it. In this grand fantasy of a self-centered will to power rising up against oppression and freeing oneself from the delusion of reality, the Matrix is merely continuing its mission, to contain the human consciousness within its own egotistic world whilst maintaining the mundane functions of physical form. Neo is the one because everyone in the Matrix is the one. The One is the program by which ultimate absorption of the individual will into the system occurs, as epitomized by the pseudo-Christological Arthurian acceptance into Avalon at the end of the third movie, aka when Neo is absorbed by the machines in the end of Revolutions. For more in-depth analyses of the Matrix franchise and its various nuances, I highly encourage you to check out Matrix Explained on the YouTubes. They do an excellent job at breaking down important concepts and the video quality is pretty good too. I'd like to thank my sources for this week's episode, including Ranker.com, WarnerBros.com, Matrix.Fandom.com, IMDB.com, Hollywood.com, and of course, Wikipedia, because if it's on Wikipedia, it's likely there is a hacker trap designed to wake you from your mental prison. Next week's episode brings us to a lovely dystopian Los Angeles with a look at the wonderfully strange movie Southland Tales by Richard Kelly. The director's second film after Donnie Darko comes as a suggestion from guest comedian Liam Riddell. We met up at the Sookie's Comedy Open Mic to chat about the film and supplemental comic book. Catch that episode airing Tuesday, March 14th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Download the free Shady Pines Radio app for Android or iOS. You could also visit us online at ShadyPinesRadio.com for 24-7 access to amazing content from Portland and beyond. Let's wrap things up with a set from Corey at the Helium Comedy Club in Southeast Portland before we check out some of his music immediately following the ha-has. Enjoy! How's it going, everybody? Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. <laughs> uh, just so you know, I eat like that whenever the fuck I want. <laughs> I, I don't let pilgrims dictate my menu. I've uh, noticed I've been talking to myself a lot lately. Anybody do this? What's weird is that I'll be in the middle of a conversation before I even notice I'm doing it. You know, and I stand up like, what the fuck am I doing? Who am I walking away from when I do that? <laughs> it's pretty weird. And it's always something super important, like living in Portland, you know, what Star Wars vehicle best suits my needs? <laughs> you know, the Millennium Falcon isn't very practical, you know, but I got to talk to somebody. You know, conversation's important. My least favorite type of conversation 
is when people start a sentence off saying, you know what I was thinking? <laughs> I don't. I don't know what you were thinking. I wish I did, because I would use it against you every way possible. Um, my favorite type of conversation is lying to Uber drivers. <laughs> I really like it. It's nothing serious, like, it's just like little factoids that I make up. Like, the first guy to ever bury another person when they died did it because he thought he was gonna grow back again. <laughs> he can't Google the shit, he's driving. He's gonna lose a star if he, if he looks it up. <laughs> I've recently become a lot closer to my mom during the pandemic. I think a lot of us did. That's the cool way I say, I live with my mom. <laughs> she does dictate what I eat for Thanksgiving, by the way. <laughs> so I've been looking for an apartment in Portland. I don't know why, but I have. I mean, Portland's great, don't get me wrong. I just don't like it. It's, I defend it a lot for because I grew up in uh, Lynn County, Oregon. Anybody heard of that place? And everybody that doesn't live in Portland talks shit about Portland. I always tell them the same thing, and it's the truth. Portland is just a place. It's great. It's the people that are fucking terrible. You know, but looking for an apartment here is kind of like uh, internet dating for me. I can, I can find a place if I'm dedicated. I don't want it. But I need a place to put my junk. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> I do use lift a lot. I don't lift a lot. But I do use lift a lot. Because uh, when I show up to somewhere, I want to be at the place I'm trying to get to. If you see me walking anywhere, I'm pissed off. <laughs> I walked from right there. And up here, I was bitching the whole time. So it's in my head, just like, what is this, fucking Middle Earth? <laughs> Nothing to do with it. But I do, and I still have this thing. When I order a car, I get washed over with this self-importance, like... Yeah, this guy's gonna come pick me up. Sky's the limit. You know, I can't wait to interrupt a conversation when my car shows up. Like, I'm just sitting there like, fuck. I gotta go, my car's here, I'm sorry. We'll continue this later. Sometimes, sometimes the drivers are nice because I'm a big guy, I don't know if you noticed. Um, they'll, they'll offer to let me sit up front, you know, because it's more roomy sometimes. There's no fucking way on earth I'm ever gonna sit up front with a Lyft or an Uber driver. There were just two dudes driving around. People are gonna think we're buddies. No, you're my driver. You're my driver. That's a good indicator of how you know you grew up poor. I think it's like I've used, I've used Lyft like probably almost a thousand times. Maybe not, but a lot. And every time, I still get super excited about it. It's like, when I was a kid, I used to get excited when I'd see English muffins. <laughs> They're not English. They're just different kinds of bread that I'm not used to seeing. 
you know? Never seen that bread before. It's pretty cool. It holds butter differently. It's fucking neat. Butter's weird, though, yeah? Can you imagine seeing the guy that invented butter? Like, you're walking by, and you're like, the fuck is he doing? Is that milk? It's gross, dude. He's gonna do what with it? No. I want no part of that shit. Keep it to yourself. Thanks, I'm Corey, guys. All right, Corey made you laugh. Now hear this track called Better Than Right by his band The Boys Wilson, as heard on Nocturnal Submissions on Shady Pines Radio. When you're done having your ears massaged by that fine old tunage, why don't you go ahead and live long and prosper, my fellow nerd. Thank you. 